We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Romans 12, 1 through 8. These are the words of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who acts of with who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 12. It's been quite the journey to get here. We began last August journeying through the book of Romans. We'll conclude middle of June this year with the book. And today we find ourselves in a rather a, a turning point of this, of this letter to the church at Rome. For the last 11 chapters, what we've seen is Paul unpacking the gospel to them. Now, let me explain again the context and where he's gone and, and why he leads us to this point. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome to address the issue of gospel unity and mission. The church at Rome was increasingly splintered along ethnic lines, racial lines, cultural lines. And Paul writes to them to call them to this loving unity for the purpose of mission. We will find later in this book that he intends to come visit them, but only for a short time because his goal is that they would send him out with the gospel to the nation of Spain. He wants to go share the gospel with those who haven't heard. He needs the church at Rome to be unified in the gospel so that together they can come together and send him on. They can fund him. They can pay for him. They can support him as he goes with the mission to a people who haven't heard yet. And in order for them to do that well, they must be unified around the gospel. And so Paul addresses this. And when Paul addresses this, he doesn't try to unify the church into the same corner of cultural issues or racial views. He doesn't try to get them all on one thought page in, in those topics. Instead, he goes, hey, there's something beyond all ethnicities and beyond all cultural issues that unifies us as Christians, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's find unity there despite all of our other differences. And so he writes to them with this aim, and he spends the first 11 chapters of this letter unpacking the glorious mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. He's told them that everyone, no matter the case, no matter their, their race, their ethnicity, their family of origin, or their morality, everyone is in need of righteousness that they cannot attain on their own. 
And that righteousness is only found through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that everyone, no matter their race or their ethnicity or their family or origin or their morality or lack thereof, is able to obtain this righteousness through faith in Jesus. And then he spends a portion of this letter reminding them that since they are saved, since they have been made righteous through faith, they should live as those who have been made righteous. He says, you were, dead to, you were alive to sin, now you're dead to sin and alive to Christ. You were a slave to sin, now you're a slave to Christ. You were in debt to sin, you're no longer in debt, it's been paid. So quit giving your life to sin. And in chapter 12, he moves from a robust declaration of the gospel to a robust exhortation from the gospel. He moves from a robust declaration of the gospel to them to a robust exhortation from the gospel. One commentator called this passage of of Romans 12 through 15, Christ's college, where Paul attempts to engender certain attitudes and behaviors appropriate for those whom whom Romans 1 through 11 is true of. If you have been saved by faith through Christ, then this is what your life should look like following that. Call it ethics, call it applied theology, call it Christian living. Paul's goal is to bring this church in Rome into gospel faith, evidenced by gospel living, resulting in gospel unity for the sake of gospel mission. He's to bring them in, his goal is to bring them into gospel faith, evidenced by gospel living, resulting in gospel unity for the sake of gospel mission. And I believe that would be his goal for us today as well. So let's look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. What, what is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? Paul begins Romans 12 with his therefore, tying back to all 11 chapters before. I saw a man this week on Twitter. I mentioned I was preaching this, and he said that at his church, his pastor said that therefore is there for something before, and he actually then went for eight, I believe it was eight months before that, and spent another eight months unpacking the rest of the Bible before they came back to this text. We're not going to spend quite that much time. I think that's a little overkill, right? But we do need to look and see what is it there for, And just in simple reality, it's there because of chapters 1 through 11, what we have seen of the gospel being unpacked. Therefore, because that is true, because you need righteousness to be right with God, because you can't obtain righteousness of your own doing, but because through faith in Christ, anyone can obtain righteousness, therefore, what he's about to unpack. Because you were an enemy of God, unable to change that, And God had love and mercy and sent his son, Jesus, to live, die, and rise for you. If you are a believer in Jesus through faith, therefore, you should live this way. Paul uses the language here. He says, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. Other translations say, urge you. I appeal or I urge. It's an urgent matter for Paul. He's pleading. He's presenting something that's important. 
It's very important. If you see the author of scripture say, I urge you or I plead with you or I appeal to you, it should, as a Christian, make you sit up on the edge of your seat, perhaps take out a pen and paper and, and want to jot down notes and go, I want to get this. This it matters. This is important to me. Perhaps even as the Christian, this I urge you or I appeal to you should spur within us a prayer. God, give me a mind to hear and a heart to obey. I'm stubborn and I'm sinful and I won't want to do this. Help me. Perhaps that should just be our prayer as we look at this. In other words, I appeal to you means you can't ignore this and walk in faithfulness. This is important. This matters. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Right, by the mercies of God, some translations say, in view of God's mercy, with the 11 chapters of Romans in mind, with all that we've already unpacked, with that as our foundation, I plead with you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. The idea of presenting ourselves to God or presenting our bodies even to God is not new in Romans. Paul told us in chapter 6 to present our members to God, not to sin. Present your hands to God. Present your mouth to God. Present your mind to God. Present your feet to God, not to sin. Use the members of your body for righteousness, for the glory of God, not for the worship of sin. This isn't new talk for him, but he brings us back to it now. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God holy and acceptable, this is your spiritual worship. Note the connection between our bodies, presenting our bodies and spiritual worship. He links the state of our physical bodies with the state of our spiritual worship. You cannot separate the two. You cannot be spiritually healthy and bodily apathetic to the commands of God. You cannot be spiritually alive and bodily dead to the affections of Christ. You cannot be spiritually healthy and display no love towards your brothers and sisters in a bodily way. You can't be spiritually healthy and allow sin to run rampant in your life. Your body and your spiritual worship are tied together and cannot be separated. You can't just gather here on a Sunday sing songs, pray prayers, and then live in disobedience and apathy the rest of the week and consider yourself a worshiper of our triune God. Your spiritual worship is tied to your physical body and what you do with it. What does it look like to present our bodies in a way that is spiritual worship? Well, you present your bodies, he says, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We have died with Christ and we've risen with Christ. Therefore, Romans has made it um, clear to us that we now live as slaves to Christ, not slaves to sin. We've been set apart, made holy, and therefore we should live as ones who are set apart and holy. In other words, our lives are to be lived from sunup to sundown, from the day of our conversion to the day of of our death, in famine and in feast, in sadness and in joy, as an ongoing sacrifice of obedience to the God who saved us. Every moment of our days, from the moment of your conversion to the moment of your death, this is your calling. In the good times and the bad times, when there's COVID and there's not COVID, when there's political turmoil and not political turmoil, in sickness and in health, 
So what does this look like? 12.2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul gives us a contrast. Don't be conformed to the world, rather be transformed in your mind, by the renewal of your mind. And he gives us a reason for this contrast. So that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's a goal, that goal is being able to discern what the will of God is, and there's a way in which we are to go about that, and ironically, in kind of a circular form, it's also discerning what the will of God is plays into the ability to continue um, not conforming to the world, but being transformed in your mind. He says, don't be conformed, rather be transformed so that you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In order for our lives to be a living sacrifice, we must know what the will of God is and what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's hard to sacrifice yourself for the right thing if you don't know what the right thing is. We all sacrifice ourselves every day for something. You're a living sacrifice for something. If what you long for most is financial security, then you will sacrifice anything for financial security. Time with family, ridiculously long hours, taking on every opportunity you can to make more money, not spending money, you save and save and save. Whatever your goal is, you, make, you are, act as a living sacrifice towards that. Paul goes, our goal should be to know what is good and acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. And to do so, then we must practice this not conforming and rather being transformed. There will be many opportunities, both great and small in life. Many ideologies to believe in, both grand and small in life. And many relationships to engage in, both deep and shallow in life. And if we do not have discernment to know the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, then we will be, to borrow from Ephesians 4, tossed to and fro by the waves of life. We'll be led away and deceived and devoured. We'll give in to relationships that we shouldn't and we'll avoid relationships that we should engage. We'll be busy ourselves with opportunities that distract us while missing invitations um, to true spiritual life. We'll chase ideals and thoughts and longings that will lead us into captivity and we'll avoid the truth that actually leads us to freedom. If we're going to spend our days as living sacrifices, we must be able to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect what the will of God is. And if we're going to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect, what the will of God is, then we must refuse to be conformed to this world and to pursue transformation by the renewal of our minds. What's this mean? What's this look like? Not being conformed to this world is not allowing yourself to, be to become like your surroundings in this world. Rather, being transformed to the image of Christ. Right? We're not to be like our neighbor, we're to be like Christ. We're not to be like the celebrity that we follow on social media, we're to be like Christ. He is the image that we are to hold up and look to and go, that's my goal, that's what I want to be like. Many of us grow up with idols that we long to be like. But Christ should be that idol, for he is the one true image to pursue. He's the image that we chase after. 
In context here, Paul's writing to this Greco-Roman culture. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't live as the Romans do. Don't live as the Greeks do. Don't live as unbelievers in your day do. Don't value what they value and despise what they despise. And the Greco-Roman culture was violent, sexually grotesque, oppressive, dehumanizing, prideful, despising of humility, avoidant of weakness, impatient, and self-indulgent. Calgacus, who fought against Rome and Britain, said about the Romans, they ransacked the world. And afterwards, when all the land has been laid waste by their pillaging, they scour the sea. They plunder, they murder, they rape in the name of their so-called empire. And where they have made a desert, they call it peace. Where they have made a desert, they call it peace. Paul is saying, don't, don't be like that, Roman Christians. Don't be like that. Don't have the mentality that seeks your own gain at the destruction or humiliation of others. Don't oppress others. Don't live in sexual immorality. Don't be violent. Don't live for self-indulgence, immediate gratification, and self-promoting dehumanization of others. Don't despise humility and weakness. Embrace them. If Paul were writing this directly to us here, his wording would be the same, I would guess. Do not be conformed to this world. What would that look like in our world if not much the same as it did in the Roman world? Being conformed to our world, being conformed to our culture, being conformed to to the United States in 2021. Forgot what year it was for a moment. It looks like indulging in sexual sin, does it not? It looks like an insatiable appetite for immediate pleasure. Unending desire for acceptance of others on social media. An inability to admit weakness, confess sins, and own mistakes. An unnerving silence when we should speak the gospel to others. Perhaps out of fear, perhaps out of shame, maybe even out of apathy. A boastfully loud hatred and disapproval of anyone who disagrees with us. Overt and covert oppression of those who think different, look different, earn different, and worship differently than we do. Grotesque abuse of those who are weaker than we are for our pleasure and our gain. And those in our country who could deny overtly doing that often find themselves in the place of personally engaging in the abuse uh, of, of engaging in the abuse of others with an unhealthy appetite to profit and enjoy when others abuse them. Undying allegiance to political systems and sides, ignoring sin, clinging to earthly powers is our great hope. A God ignoring fear of pandemics and conspiracies. Embrace of ideals that ignore God's sovereignty, doubt God's love, hate God's image bearers, and spit on God's law. A belief of worldviews that ignore God's grace, doubt his transformative power, and categorize people based upon the, our, our belief or if they are redeemable, or of, based upon our belief of if they are redeemable and usable. Perhaps above all is a longing for self-made independent of God, security in life that we can never seem to grasp. When Paul would tell us at Emmaus Church, 
in Kansas City in 2021 do not conform to this world, this just scratches the surface of what conforming to this world may look like for you. Paul would say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In other words, begin to shape your thinking around what is good and acceptable and perfect, the will of God. Allow the word of God to transform our minds to see the world through a different lens so that we're not conformed to the world. A mind that has been transformed by the will of God rather than conforming to the world, sees sex as a gift created by our good God to be enjoyed in a safe, committed marriage. We are to see those outside of our marriage, not as sexual beings to be desired and used, nor as sexual traps to be avoided, but as valued image bearers of God to bless and to love and to care for in relationship. Those whose minds have been transformed believe in God's common grace, that he has given us much, and all of us are learned to learn contentment, whether we have much or we have little. For I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, which in context is about living with much and living with little. Those who are transformed look not to man's acceptance for approval, but to their sonship and their daughtership of God, the Father, who through Jesus Christ has accepted you completely and fully. Christian, you never have to long for acceptance again. It has been given to you by the one who created you and knows you better than anyone. He knows all of your faults and all of your secrets, and he fully accepts you because of Christ. The one who has been transformed embraces weakness because in his weakness, God's strength is seen. He embraces confession because in confession there is life. She embraces owning her mistakes for in owning our mistakes we're reminded that we are accepted by God not based on our perfection but Christ's perfection. We believe it's okay to be weak and to fail and though we should seek to live free of sin we also believe our sin when we fall to it and give to it does not define us because of Christ. We boldly declare the gospel of Jesus Christ because the Spirit empowers us. The Word speaks for us, and God will save. We can promise, or we've been promised this. We love our enemies, even those who disagree with us. Rather than, um, rather than oppressing others, we seek to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. We don't see people as ones to be used, rather people as ones to bless we give up our preferences, our opinions, our comforts, and our gains for the other. We look with no preference on the rich and no content on the poor, for our gain is not in what others have, but in the gospel of Jesus. We do not look down on ethnicities, cultures, genders, or religions, for we believe that all men and women are created in the image of God and have intrinsic value, worthy of love and kindness. We do not abuse others, and we dare not enjoy and benefit from the abuse of others. Rather, our hearts break at the thought, and our fists tighten, and our words are sharp, and our prayers are bold, and our actions speak loudly on behalf of the oppressed. We will not stand by while injustice is played out in the abuse and oppression of another. We do not look to earthly powers for hope. 
We are part of an eternal kingdom with an eternal king who is not voted out, does not lead by opinion polls, and is not manipulated by left-wing inclusivism or right-wing moralism. He is a God who is perfectly just and perfectly good and perfectly sovereign and perfectly wise and perfectly graceful, and we trust him as our king and our ruler and our security. We do not fear sickness for our life, for we are in the hands of the great physician. And we do not tremble at conspiracy theories, but trust our God who knows every secret. We declare that our God is sovereign and that his love is steadfast and that his image bearers should be shown love and kindness and that his law is good for our joy. We do not cling to our own self-made security, but we trust God's good grace that even if all is stripped from us in this life and we suffer the rest of our days, the suffering we now face pales in comparison to the glory that will be revealed to those who are in Christ. Paul is calling the Christian to have a mind, their thoughts and their beliefs, a heart, their affections and desires, and a body, their actions and obedience that are wholly committed to Christ. That's what being a living sacrifice looks like. From the day of your conversion to the day of your death, no matter how good or bad the day is, that our mind and our heart and our body are wholly committed to him and his cause. Present your bodies with a living sacrifice. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may know what is good and acceptable and perfect, the perfect will of God. Verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching and the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity and the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Paul goes here on to explain for us what it looks like within the body of Christ to actually function as living sacrifices together. Next week, we take a break from Romans to to celebrate Easter. And then the following week, we'll jump back into the second half of Romans 12, where Paul actually gets very detailed into what this looks like in our lives. I'll just be honest, church. Like, I, I believe the next several portions of Romans might be the most difficult for many of us to hear. Perhaps Romans 9 felt difficult for you of God's choosing of those who are saved. And that was a theologically difficult world. But for many of us, it's not the the broad pictures of doctrine that are difficult, but it's the practicality of how that doctrine plays out in our lives that will actually drive us insane sometimes. And the next portions of this will drive into our hearts, our kindness, our love, our generosity, our thoughts, the way that we respond to our governing authorities. It gets very practical for us. And within the church, again, Paul is concerned about the unity for the church here, and he brings into verses 3 through 8 this concern. 
What he's going to unpack for us in these six verses is that the church should live in unity by having a proper view of ourselves and others and by valuing and practicing the gifts with which God has gifted each member. In the words of Martin Luther, all this Paul writes in the interest of unity. Nothing is likely to cause so much division as when people do not stay within the proper bounds of their calling, but neglect their own ministry and break in upon others. God does not give to every person all gifts, as we learn from 1 Corinthians 12, since it is God who distributes all gifts, but does not bestow all of them upon a single person. No one should exalt himself as though he had all the others for by his arrogance, the unity of the church is destroyed. In light of verses 1 through 2, we are to then, seeing verses 3 through 8, spend our days as living sacrifices, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to, and thinking of others more highly than we naturally do. Not thinking of ourselves as highly, more highly than we ought to, and then, by default, thinking of others more highly than we naturally do. Verse 3, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but think of yourself with sober judgment according to the measure of faith God has assigned. Now, to be honest, this verse almost seems counterintuitive. Hey, don't think too much about yourself. Don't think more of yourself than you ought to. Don't, don't be prideful. Think of yourself in light of the gift that God has given you of faith. Think of yourself in light of God's gifting of faith and his gifting of gifts to you. And that can seem counterintuitive because on one hand we go, well, well, man, that's putting the emphasis on like on what I have. Like it's putting the emphasis on, oh, look how much faith I have and, and look at the gifts that I have and, and that's gonna bring out more pride. But the emphasis Paul gives us here and the emphasis he's given us in his other letters is that any gift that we have, including faith, is a gift from God. It is not our own. And here we see this played out for us. Now, he's going to talk about the church like a physical body. Right? Just as a physical body has many body parts, so does the church have many parts. In your physical body, if you had all feet and no hands, it would be awfully difficult to do a lot of things. If you had two hearts and no lungs, well, you would not live. You had four eyes and no ears. You could see really well, but you wouldn't hear anyone sneaking up behind you. You may be able to see what's coming, but you couldn't listen to each other. The parts of our body that he's given us all play a very unique function, and they're very important for us to be healthy. And the same is true for the church. The church has many members. At Emmaus, we have young and we have old-ish. We have very wealthy, and we have very poor. We have Asian and black and Native American and Pacific Islander and white. We have men, we have women. We have theologically trained and biblically illiterate. We have heady intellectuals, and we have emotional feelers. Enneagram threes and Enneagram fives. Golden retrievers and lions. Some of you are too young to know anything about that personality test. It's like five of us in here who know about that one. High Ds, high Cs, educated and uneducated, introverts and extroverts. And all of these various types of people, 
with various personalities and various natural gifts also have various spiritual gifts. Now, this sermon is not a sermon about spiritual gifts. I don't believe that's the emphasis Paul is giving us here. The emphasis is not, let me explain these gifts to you. There are other passages about that within Scripture. And if you have questions about spiritual gifts and what spiritual gifts are and how spiritual gifts play out, our pastors would love to shepherd you through that. You can always email us, elders at EmmausKC.com. We'd love to walk through that with you. But here Paul does list various gifts within the church, some with the gifts of prophecy and some with service and some with teaching and some with exhortation, giving and leadership and mercy. It's not an exhaustive list from Scripture, but it's a representative of various gifts God has given. In other words, he's simply saying, we all are different and we're different on purpose. The teaching here is not primarily on what these gifts are or how these gifts function within the church. Rather, the emphasis is on the purpose of various gifts and the posture of the ones who have these gifts. The purpose of various gifts and the posture of the ones who have these gifts. And it also should be seen here that faith is a gift. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That God has actually given each of us in this room who are followers of Christ a measure of faith. An amount of faith. And your measure of faith may differ from my measure of faith. Praise the Lord, my wife has more faith than I do. It is good for our marriage that way. We have a measure of faith given to you and then a way in which that faith is practiced, the gift that he has given you. Prophecy, mercy, serving, giving. This idea that faith is is a gift is not new to Paul. He has talked about this elsewhere in his letters. Here he unpacks the posture and the purpose of our spiritual gifting of faith And our action of that faith, our gifting, is humble pursuit of unity and love in the church. We have all been gifted differently in faith and in our giftings for unity within the church for the sake of the mission of the church. So verse 3 says we ought to think, we ought to think, or ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but soberly keeping in mind the measure of faith God has assigned. Right, God has given me, Joshua Hedger, a measure of faith and a gifting to practice my faith for the love and unity of this church. And God has given Julie Masson a measure of faith and a gifting to practice her faith for the love and the unity of the church. And God has given Charlene Simpson a measure of faith and a gifting to practice her love and or to practice her faith for the love and unity of the church. And God has given Billy Wallace a measure of faith and a gifting to practice his faith for the love and the unity of the church. And division comes into the church when the members of the church begin to think more highly of their faith and their gift than they should, or when they begin to think more lowly of another's faith and gift than they should. When I begin to think more highly of my gift and my faith than I should, or more lowly of yours than I should. If I look at Billy's gift, And I look at Billy's faith and I think he simply doesn't have as much faith as I do. He's not as faithful as I am. 
He serves the church well in his own way, but he ser- his, his way of serving the church is not as valuable as my way of serving the church. If this is my mindset, then division grows within our church. But if I look to Charlene and I think, goodness gracious, God is good to put her in our church. If everyone at Emmaus thought like Josh, believed like Josh, had faith like Josh, was gifted like Josh, we would be a very unlikable group of achievement-based pushers who seldom slow down to show hospitality and serve others. And by God's grace and wisdom, he's given us Charlene, who generously has people into her home, making outstanding curry for them and showing them incredible love and acceptance while sharing her culture with them so that the members of our church are functioning in more health because they experience a level of hospitality and love and graciousness that I do not naturally give. Likewise, if we were all like Charlene and no one was like me, then we would be deeply satisfied on curry and hospitality, but we would miss leadership and teaching that nourishes our souls in a different kind of way. Both are needed for the sake of the health and unity of our church. And when we can look at each other, if we can see each other in the way God has gifted each other and value that, it brings this unity. Unity in the church comes when I am not prideful about the way God has gifted me or dismissive about the way he has gifted you. Unity in the church comes when I am not jealous of the way God has gifted you and despairing of the way he has gifted me. Because perhaps you would sit here and go, I have no pride about the way he's gifted me. I feel like I have no gifting, like I'm of no value. That's just the opposite end of the same issue. God has given you a measure of faith and a gift to serve his body for the unity of the church so that the mission of the church may go forward. Do not despair the gift he's given you. My big toe can despair all at once of being a toe, but if it's missing, I am not running the same. We need all the gifts. Your gift matters. Your faith matters for this body. God is perfect in his dealing of of our gifts. His shuffling them out was not random. His placement of gifts was purposeful. And his church functions best when it joyfully and humbly embraces them. So church, Present your body as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Begin by thinking rightly about yourself and your fellow church members. God has given each of us a gift of faith and an action according to his perfect will, and we need each other in order to be a beautiful display of the gospel to the world. Paul's goal was to bring the church of Rome into gospel faith, evidenced by gospel living, resulting in gospel unity for the sake of gospel mission. And I believe this is what the Spirit would want to do with us here today at Emmaus as well. In two weeks, we'll unpack what this mindset will lead to us to live like. It is convicting, and it is challenging, and I believe that there should be much repentance and confession and adjustment to this. I believe there's much conforming to the world we don't realize, and there needs to be much transforming to be embraced. But today, this week, I challenge you to pursue a mind, the thoughts, 
and a heart, your affections, and a body, your actions, that are wholly committed to Christ. This is your spiritual act of worship. Pursue that. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.